0: everyone and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the society of graduate students at western university. I am your host Emily Hutchinson and I'm your
1: co-host Brittany Melton.
0: And we are here for our last podcast of the season so that's very exciting. We're here with Soren Coulson. Thank you so much for being here Soren.
2: Thank you very much Emily for the invite.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about what you do and what you study?
2: Sure. So I study mitochondria, more commonly known as the powerhouse of the cell. And I study them in birds, specifically birds that like to migrate, because that's really an area that hasn't been explored. Mitochondria are really important for exercise and moving around. And migration, of course, is lots of exercise.
0: That's really cool. So, can you tell us what kinds of birds migrate? Do they all do it? Do some of them do it more than others? Like, what what can you expect when you we see the birds that live around
2: here? Which ones are going? Yeah, there's it's a pretty amazing how much variation there is in migration among birds. Right now, it's in the middle of December, so. The birds that we have around right now, most of them don't vibrate. So perhaps we're all familiar with the cardinal or the blue jay, chickadees. Those kind of birds like to stick around pretty well the entire year, whereas other birds tend to fly really long distances. So a lot of our warblers, as an example, like to spend some time perhaps in the northern parts of Canada, in the boreal forest but they'll like to fly down towards the southern United States or even as far as as South America. And then you have some that fly only a very short distance and some that fly really extreme distances. So some of the really exciting uh, champions of migration are what's called bar-tailed godwits and they're pretty astounding in that they can fly from Alaska to New Zealand, so they're essentially crossing the Pacific Ocean through flight, which is just kind of an ultra marathon of ultra marathons.
1: Soren, can you expand um, for the birds that are traveling all different distances? Are you testing on all of the different distances, or are you focusing on one distance, short or long?
2: Yeah, that's yeah, that's a pretty big part of one of our studies. Is we're trying to compare birds of different migration distances like you're mentioning so although it's a little bit challenging and that really we can only get certain birds that pass through the southern Ontario region so it becomes a little bit challenging for some let's say the long distance migrants there just don't seem to be quite as many coming uh, through the southern Ontario region compared to like the shorter distance migrants but we do try to get birds from each of those different migration strategies.
0: That's really cool. So you mentioned that it's kind of like an ultra marathon. So how do these birds get ready for that? Can they just up and go whenever they want? Do they Can they only do it at a certain time of year? What How do they get ready for such a big marathon?
2: Yeah, that's a pretty interesting area to study there too. And that's they don't really seem to just pack up their bags and leave one day. They actually spend a couple of weeks getting ready. So, kind of like what we would do for going on our vacation, we have to get everything sorted out and uh, pack up our things. So, some of the things that they do is for one, they put on a lot of fat because that's their main fuel that they use to burn as they fly. And it's also really amazing how much fat some of these birds can put on in a short amount of time, too. We have some birds that get up to Half of their body weight is fat, which is almost funny to see, because it's a little ball with feathers, and it's kind of hilarious. They can also rework some of their flight muscles and put in new feathers as well. So there's lots of changes that go on to help them get ready for the challenges of migration.
1: And does that weight that they put on before they leave, I don't know if you know this, but affect their, like, beginning of their flight? Yes. Weigh them down, slow them down.
2: Yeah, that's, yeah, it's a very interesting point there, yeah, because you're right that at the beginning of the flight, they're going to be very heavy, and as a result of that, they're going to be, they're going to have to fly or with more exertion. So that is a hypothesis that some people have, or some researchers have posited that Flight gets a little bit easier as they go along, like just like how in an airplane, as they burn their fuel, the jet gets a little bit lighter. And as a result of that, some other things might change at the same time. And that's really important because these birds like to be very efficient with their energy. So they're kind of really, they're only have, they try to minimize how much energy that they're spending during flight at any given point in time.
0: That's really cool. So to just jump off that a little bit, you say the birds put on a lot of fat because that's what fuels them. But when I picture humans, human athletes do not have a lot of fat. And so what are the differences there? Like how do these birds manage to do it with all this fat? Do they also increase their muscle? Is it kind of like a a different location of where the fat gets put on in their bodies? Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Yeah. It's a little bit of pretty well everything that you mentioned. So there are um, certain areas in the body that they'll like to put their fat, like they kind of like to put it all sort of in their torso, if you will. So, they, and it's thought that it's in a way, so that improves aerodynamics. So we don't put them all on their arms or on their wings, as an example, we put it. So um, the airflow over them as they fly isn't disrupted as much and causing drag, etc., So there's a little bit of uh, specialized placement on their body for the fat, but in addition to that, there's also some changes to the muscle that allows them to burn more fat as well. And that's kind of uh, sort of where my area of study starts to intersect with the literature is is exploring how that happens, because we know that um, these flight muscles, when the birds are migratory, they have more machinery in place to burn that fat. And the muscles also get larger, too, so there's, again, lots of interesting metabolic things going on in this uh, time frame.
1: Can I ask what brought you to migratory birds as a research topic?
2: Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's funny how before I came to Western, I didn't really know much at all about birds, really. I just thought, oh, yeah, I've seen some birds and out in the neighborhood, like the robins and cardinals, et cetera. So I didn't really know much about them. And then I was talking with uh, one of my joint supervisors, Dr. Guglielmo in the biology department, and watched some of his talks at some conferences and read a little bit of his work. And it just blew me away how these birds are able to overcome this you know, monumental energetic challenge and energy metabolism and wacky animals is really my, uh, what I find really interesting in the, the research that I do. That's awesome. So, you
0: mentioned that you look at mitochondria in the birds. Can you tell us about what you measure with the mitochondria? Because we know that they're the powerhouse of the cell and that birds do cool things with them. But what are you actually looking at? What do you go into the lab and, and measure?
2: Right, yeah, so what we can do with the mitochondria is we have this very fancy machine, and we can put some mitochondria into this machine in this little tiny chamber that's totally sealed off, and we can measure oxygen concentration and how it changes over time because the mitochondria are going to consume that oxygen and do all of their mitochondria things. And the rate of oxygen consumption over time, we can uh, change by giving it different stimulants, and different fuels, and different inhibitors that bring the respiration back down. So, we can measure oxygen consumption that way. And we also have a new fancy attachment on this machine that allows us to measure uh, free radical formation. So, those nasty things that you've probably read about that attack uh, their telomeres and cause aging and things like that, because mitochondria are a major source of these reactive uh, molecules.
0: So how does that relate to the birds? Do you find that the birds that are migrating have more fruit radicals or do they have a higher respiration rate or consuming oxygen more? Where's that connection?
2: Yeah, yeah, so from what we've seen, we've done, uh, we're just writing up a seasonal comparison study. So we have some birds that are, uh, measure their mitochondria in their migratory season and then compared mitochondria from birds in a non-migratory season. And we found that their oxygen consumption when they are making uh, useful fuel for the cell is higher during migration. So it supports uh, our hypothesis that the migratory mitochondria are better at burning fuel and producing usable energy for the cells. So we can think when these birds are exercising that perhaps this mitochondria, when they're migratory, are better equipped for burning fuel and providing useful energy. Yeah, at the same time, they don't seem to be uh, creating as many of these damaging uh-huh. reactive
1: species. Can I ask, so when you're studying a the mitochondria in birds that are in their migratory season, are you replicating that season? Or can you just, like any season is migratory season for a specific bird and it doesn't matter if they're actually in that process or not? Or do you have to replicate that?
2: Right. So because what we've done is we were testing the mitochondria and birds caught during their migration. So they're already um, in that phenotype. They're already in that disposition uh, when they got to Western. Alternatively, there are other ways to reduce that disposition. We can change with um, the day length that they're housed under. So um, they become migratory if they're placed under long days. But that's really important because there's only two times of the year that these birds are migratory. The other two times in the year, they are not. Either they are overwintering, which is when they're just kind of relaxing on their tropical vacation and perhaps not as active, or they're in a breeding season, which is when things get a little hairy and they're uh, trying to raise young and establish breeding territory. And that's not quite an area that we've really delved into just yet, but uh, it's that's why we really tried to focus on the migratory versus the non-migratory comparison.
1: So if we see you out running around campus trying to catch birds, that's why. Very specific type of year, very small frame to do it.
2: Exactly, exactly, yes. There's a very narrow window of time <laughs> to do this work. So,
0: That's really cool. So... To talk a bit more about uh your short day photo period and how you can kind of put them into a migratory phenotype i have two questions one of them is more related to what you do one of them isn't but can all birds be put into the migratory phenotype or is it only certain ones and then the second one is are there any other processes that happen in animals that you can control like that or is it just migration like well, what else is going on what can you control in that way that might be a harder one
2: yeah, let's see. For your first question, um, I don't think it would work that for all birds that if you were to put them on these long day photo periods or uh, the long day life cycles, that that would cause every single bird to become migratory because some birds just haven't really evolved that kind of strategy. Like we were talking about a little bit earlier that uh, we have some species that, stick around more or less the same area almost all year round. So they're used to the uh, the day length changing and yet they don't become migratory. So I don't think, you know, as my non-expert opinion is that if not all birds would become migratory on the uh, long day photo period. And I forget, what was your second question?
0: The second one was, can you control any other physiological processes with like, long
2: days, short days, or anything else in the lab? Yeah, so for birds, maybe to start with, yes, because what we can also do is we can induce the uh, breeding um, Mm -hmm. uh, disposition, if you will, that's been pretty classically shown that um, the longer the days are, um, a lot of birds will secrete a hormone that's directly tied to becoming uh, being able to breed. So breeding is a really well supported um, physiological process that's, that you can manipulate with a uh, photo period. And as for other things, I mean, I've heard tell of some hibernating mammals that can also do something similar in the biology department. So if you make the days shorter and shorter, it's the uh, hibernating mammals read it as, "Oh, hey, winter is coming in close, so I need to start getting ready for winter and getting ready to hibernate." That's great. That's really cool.
1: Very interesting. Uh, sort. I have a question. So, I'm not super familiar with what goes on in the biology department. So, I'm wondering if you could speak to a bit of what your like an average day in the lab looks like for you right now.
2: Yeah, right now it's so because it's so we're out of the uh, migratory season right now so we're not there's nothing no crazy sampling days but uh, right now kind of my average day has been uh first thing in the morning is we have to do bird care so we have some birds that are kept in the advanced facility for avian research kind of on the west edge of main campus and every single day we have to go in and check on all the birds make sure that they're doing okay give them fresh allocation of some pre-made diet and some mealworms which i think are gross but they just love to get and we just go around check everyone out make sure everyone's doing okay give them some food water it works and then after that i can go on to do some uh more wet lab work. So some of the work that I do in our lab is a little more biochemical. So we do some assays for different enzymes. So those cellular machines that are really important for metabolism, we can measure some of their activity. We can do some western blots to measure the abundance of similar proteins. And we have some really commonly known or well-used Techniques that we can use to study different aspects of metabolism in some tissues of interest, like the flight muscle, which is what I'm particularly interested in.
0: That's really good. So, of all the birds you've ever had in the lab and had to feed, feed the yucky mealworms, which one was your favorite?
2: Ooh, that's a good question. I've had quite a few so far. It's hmm, it might be. It's pro- I'm probably going to have to say the uh, red-eyed vireo. So not a very common bird to anyone that's maybe hasn't really done much bird watching, but it's this cute little bird that when they're adults, they have this kind of menacing red eye, but they're very cute otherwise. They like to make lots of squawking sounds, et cetera. But they're kind of hilarious in that I think they're smarter than the average bird. And they can tell that or at least they learn that once you come into the room, oh, they're probably going to get fed very soon, so they get very excited. And kind of as a result of that, when you bring in the food into their holding area, they aren't really scared of you. They're just ready, rearing to go to get some of those mealworms because they just love them. So you can even feed them from the hand if you want, just put some mealworms in there, and they will come and grab them straight out of your hand. So they're kind of hilarious for that.
1: And do you name the birds? I think that this is a very uh, non-biology question, but do you name the birds?
2: <laughs> I haven't, but uh, I mean, I do get attached sometimes because some of our birds will put little uh, colored bands on their legs because it helps to keep track of them because you're like, oh, that's red, that's blue, etc. cetera. And so, and when you handle some of these birds fairly often, You do get a little bit attached, like uh, what I was doing a couple months ago is we were using the wind tunnel in our facility. And I was doing some flights with some of our birds there. And I got to know we had some birds that were really lazy and did not want to fly. And some birds, that were really good at flying. So from that point, like, oh, okay, yeah, that's the champion flyer there. And that's the potato over there. So that was a good time.
0: That's awesome. So you're doing your PhD now, and you're a couple years in. What do you plan to do after this? So what is your what's your immediate plan right after this? And then, if you know, what's your overall goal? What would you like to do with this degree and your life?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a that's a pretty big question. (laughs) uh, Ideally, plan A is to stick in academia. So the next step would be to find a postdoc position somewhere, likely in a Uh, institution outside of uh, probably the province I think outside of Ontario there's one lab I've been looking at a little bit that's based in Auburn Alabama they do kind of similar work but they also have this kind of mobile laboratory that they can go and work with birds anywhere which I think is really super cool and then after that probably do a couple more postdocs I'm I really like the birds, so I'd like to stick with them if possible. But I actually started working with uh, mammals to begin with, some wild mice. So I'd be okay with going back to mice or perhaps fish or something else. But with the ultimate goal of becoming a professor, preferably in Canada. And I haven't really quite figured out what my research program would be, but probably still something energy metabolism, energy metabolism in some wacky bird or wacky animal.
0: That's great. And so kind of a follow-up for this one. Uh, If there's a a young undergrad or or someone like that who wanted to do what you do, study birds and get a PhD, what advice would you have for them to do what you do?
2: Yeah, well, uh, if they're at Western, they are in one of the best places around because we have some of uh, a surprisingly large collection of world-class ornithologists right on campus. And which is pretty unheard of and that most other institutions typically have maybe one or two researchers that study birds, but here is kind of the best place to be. And the advanced facility for avian research that we have on campus is a world-class facility that's almost the the only one of its kind in North America. Uh, But because of um, this facility, we also have a quite multidisciplinary approach to studying birds. So we have some ecologists, some physiologists. We even have some more neuroscience people that are working on birds and how they do some amazing things they do. So just do a little bit of reading on what goes on on campus and just reach out to whoever you are most intrigued by.
1: Could you speak to maybe? And I don't want to. I don't want to give you too big of a question, but some of the like larger ramifications of your of your research what could what could happen if uh, with our findings with your findings not ours
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's a very good question always significance is always so important to be able to communicate for any study so for my study so really we're looking at um, energy metabolism in a couple different contexts so one of them being we're doing this big comparative study, so we mentioned before we're comparing across a bunch of uh, birds of different migratory strategies. Well, to do that, we actually have to make a bunch of comparisons among a uh, lots of different species of birds. So, from that, we can actually make some inferences on how some of these birds have evolved and how some of these metabolic um, strategies have evolved over time, which can be really elucidating for understanding the evolution of birds for the genuids, which is a pretty active field of research, as well as understanding how um, some of these really important ecological life history things that they're doing, like example, breeding, migration, overwintering, et cetera, by studying how these mitochondria function, we can have a much better insight as to how the physiology of these systems you know, intersects with the ecology of these birds. And kind of in a more broader picture, we can also just see how um, energy metabolism varies across different animals. This kind of work that I'm doing with mitochondria and birds, I think I've read one or two studies that's ever done similar measurements that I've done. So it's a pretty wide open niche that's never really been explored before.
0: That's great. It's really cool to be at the forefront of your field too, that's great. Have you ever found anything really surprising? Like a finding that you didn't expect to have that you're not really sure what causes it?
2: Yeah, that's, yes. So that's kind of what I'm working on now is, so some of the preliminary results from that uh, inter-migratory distance comparison we've done. We've compared four species so far. We have, we've actually done a couple more species, but those are, I haven't quite gotten around to analyzing those data and interpreting them just yet. But the ones that we have done, we found when we compare a short distance migrant bird to a long distance migrant bird, the long distance bird had kind of less good mitochondria compared to short distance migrant, which was completely opposite of what we predicted. We had thought, oh, if these birds are migrating really long distances, then that must mean they must have super mitochondria that can do everything super well because they're going all these crazy long distances. But it almost seems to be the opposite of that. So that was really surprising. So we'll see if that trend holds up as we add in more species. But so far, that's kind of been the biggest surprise.
1: Very Interesting. And if you make any large findings, do you plan to name them after yourself? (laughs) Uh,
2: Well, maybe. I don't know. I don't know if I have too much self-awareness for um, (laughs) naming something like the Coulson paradigm. I don't know. (laughs) I'll probably just give it some lame scientific name, I
1: think. Some series of numbers. (laughs) Yeah, basically, (laughs) exactly. Uh, Can you tell
0: us a little bit about the Advanced Facility for Avian Research? You said that it's one of the best in the country. What makes it so good? What do they have there? What are they hiding in that building?
2: Yeah, so there's there's lots of goodies in there. So the one that comes to mind, probably my favorite part, is our wind tunnel. So it's pretty uh, strange when you think about it, but it's essentially like a treadmill for birds because we blow wind at them and they can fly against the wind. And so what we can do with this system is we can uh, fly birds under a really wide variety of conditions because we can manipulate a lot of different environmental things in that uh, wind tunnel, including wind speed, temperature, humidity, and even air pressure. So that's the other really astounding thing about this wind tunnel is it's the only one in the world that is actually pressurized so we can actually simulate a high altitude flight in that wind tunnel and again the only one in the world that can do that so it's pretty astounding we also have some specialized rooms for bioacoustics so for song for uh, song learning etc these like soundproof rooms there's a surgical suite folding areas and neuro, like neuroscience and histology suite it's pretty pretty wild all of the specialized things we have in there and it's all for the research of birds specifically
0: that's amazing that's really cool so one more thing i'd like to ask you that i like to ask at the end what is your
2: favorite part of your day Ooh, favorite part of my day hmm probably hanging out with birds i think it's because a lot of them a lot of them have different personalities too so like the vireos, for example, get very excited when food is coming in. Then you have others that some some of our thrushes that are very different disposition. They, think they kind of stay away from me, and you know they're. And we have all these other different kinds of birds in there too. That just all these different experiences I would never get if I saw them out in the in the wild while I'm bird watching, as an example. I can actually pick them up and see them face to face. And that's pretty, pretty amazing. Although I still think one of my favorite experiences is probably flying a bird in the wind tunnel, which doesn't happen every day, but seeing a bird fly for eight hours is pretty amazing. Although very exhausting (laughs) at the end Yeah,
0: I'll bet, that's great. All right, well, thank you so much, Soren. It's been really good talking to you and we learned a lot about birds and mitochondria and what you do with them. So this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Emily Hutchinson, and my co-host was Brittany Melton. We've been speaking with Soren Colson, and this episode was produced by Hira Nadim. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. at at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM and you can find all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and have a great night.